Welcome back to another episode of Fez Talks. I, of course, am your host, Fez. Today on the podcast, I talk with my friend and longtime Star Trek writer, Dave Yolander. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Okay, today on the podcast, I have my first Star Trek writer and friend from the fan film series, Star Trek New Voyages Phase 2, and that is Dave Gallanter. Dave, say hello to whoever may or may not be listening out there. Hello, everybody. It's nice to possibly or possibly not uh, be here for you. So, Dave, I've known you for, God almost 10 years now something like that yep and uh, i don't know the whole story of how you got into star trek and how you got into writing so would you mind um star trek my mother sort of got me into and that uh she was a science fiction fan so she watched science fiction and i ended up watching science fiction uh back then it was you know star trek uh, space 1999 maybe dreadfully dull for a kid um and uh um when i was seven star wars but i never got that big into star wars um so star trek was my jam uh and in fact i remember watching the star trek cartoon and pulling the tv close to this box that i had drawn on the inside of as like a space shuttle um, and was pretending that Mr. Spock uh, was giving me reports with that. And then later with In Search Of, his, uh, <laughs> his TV show, I pretended was just Spock giving me science reports from different planets. Um, and so I was all in for Star Trek. Uh, the writing, I think I was probably uh, always a writer in one degree or another trying to write it was my uh talent quote unquote um that uh, i had to use for a fourth grade and fifth grade sort of project you had to do something in front of the class every week uh to entertain them to do something and i would write stories and read them to them which i have no doubt were horrible um i i remember very little other than like I would do a takeoff on the Twilight Zone called the Pilot Zone, where the fascinating twist was someone being hit um, with a, a pie instead of whatever twist the um, uh, 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 you know Twilight Zone would have some fascinating, interesting about aliens. I would have something about a pie coming through the door, floating through the door mysteriously and smashing you in the face. So not the great writer was I. <laughs> um, and then uh, I happened to have met um, 
uh, in a bookstore once of all things, uh, Diane Carey and her husband, Greg Broder, who became good friends. And I showed them something that I was writing because I always kept trying to write and it was usually Star Trek because that was what sparked my imagination. Um, and I showed them a Star Trek script that I was writing because I always thought I was better for scripts. Um, and, uh, you know, TNG was on at the time. And uh, I think the only thing they saw in it that was like they could really work with was um, I knew when, when to start and when to end a scene, which is a hard thing to sort of learn. Most people think a scene starts at the beginning. It's very boring if it starts at the beginning. Um, you know, you don't want to, you want to see them down on the planet with what's going on. Uh, you, you don't want to see Riker, you know, making sure that his, uh, pips are all right. And, uh, and, and that his combat is on for 10 minutes first. Um, not that TNG didn't do something like that sometimes. Um, <clears throat> but at least there was character going on as opposed to just watching him in the mirror. Um, and they encouraged me to keep writing and they encouraged me enough that they said, why don't you try your hand at, uh, prose at, at writing in a book form? Cause that's what they, that's what Diane did. Um, and then she could give me more specific comments about how to write. Um, and she did. There's a hell of a thing for an author to do. Um, <clears throat> that's, you know, taking your your hard-won craft and teaching it to someone. And uh, I was sort of surprised and shocked that they were doing that for me, but they did. And it worked out. What was interesting is that eventually they gave me all they could. Diane gave me all the writing tips that she could. Greg gave me all the plotting that he could. And then I was able to do it on my own. And there's probably nothing more different than mine and Diane's writing style. Um, but, uh, but that's okay, because all that meant is that my voice eventually came out and I wasn't trying to copy anybody else's. Funny enough, the way I remember it anyway, you and David Gerald, because I met you both at the same time, were the two that kind of, you know, you saw a couple of things that I wrote and so did he, and you both kept kept saying to me, keep writing. This yeah. th this particular thing's good. You might want to try to trim some of the fat on certain things. So I will always be appreciative of you two for doing that, both as published Star Trek writers or writers in general that have actually met. Well, I can't speak to why David uh, would, um, but... My reason is the same reason uh, um, that I told you before, which is if somebody gives you something, then you, you should pass it on. You should, you know, if somebody takes you under their wing, then you should take somebody under their wing. And uh, my advice to you was always hope to be um, high level. This is how you do it advice as to how this is, not how the sentence can be better, but how can this in future sentences be better? Um, and I, I hope I always uh, gave that. I know when I, and I was, I always felt, um, I did not feel burdened to make comments. I know that there are some writers, and if I had to do it for everybody, um, I, I probably wouldn't. But 
I've done it for uh, as far down the uh, the human rung as Alec Peters, uh, just because I was trying to be nice. Um, and uh, I think you try to be nice and you try to encourage. And there are some people that can take it on board, who can, you know, see the see what you're giving them and say, oh, maybe I can apply that later. And there are some who just think it fixed that line and so it's okay. Um, and they don't. They either think you're going to be there to fix the next line that they write, or they uh, um, they just don't care. There are people who do not want to write they want to have written um and uh, i've come across quite a few people some of whom can actually admit that that they realize in working with somebody that they don't want to put in the work of writing they want to have it all done already um which is a, a strong thing for one to admit but it's because we all have ideas in our head and we all have these uh, stories, because life is stories, that we want to get out there. And it's harder for some people than it is for others to, to do that sort of thing. I think you have a, a predilection toward telling stories. Um, and uh, so that was always my impetus for saying, here, let me give some pointers if I can because it didn't seem like they'd be wasted. There are people on whom it would, it would be, it has been and who it would be wasted. And so why put your time past the initial time uh, to figure that out? Paul Sieber would be a good example of someone who could take on board what I said um, in looking over a script of his and giving him notes and apply it, not just to the part of the script I read, but to the rest of the script and to his next script that he was working on. One thing that I always remembered you telling me um, when it came to my writing, and I even I take it in, even now, putting into stuff that I'm writing now is that you most writers should, if they can, even if it is in the 23rd or the 24th century is what write what you know or write about experience because you know how you felt in that moment you can right. you can apply it to whoever whatever the character is and just kind of you know to use a woodworking term you can sand and feather out the the ed the edges of it well yeah, I think it's true that writing what you know is writing about the feelings that you know and how to, uh, 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 like I said, I put something autobiographical into my last book because I was drawing on my own feelings for this particular characterization. Um, and it's not like Gene Roddenberry knew how to fly a starship. He wasn't writing what he knew as far as starships were concerned. He was writing what we, he knew about what humanity, how humanity was concerned. And he was a human being and he knew how to be that. And he knew what humans felt. And so that's what, that's the struggle you see on Star Trek and why it's compelling is it's because it's us feeling things and working through our feelings, which is difficult. Um, and, but can be very compelling uh, television. Star Trek oddly stands up um, 
even through its 1960s pacing for the most part. Um, a lot of shows don't stand up for their pacing uh, from decade to decade, just because we write differently. We write better, uh, I don't wanna say better. Uh, things are written differently as time goes on and Star Trek is sort of contemporary in its pacing. Um, uh, it, it moves pretty quickly if you watch some of those old series. Uh, there's not a lot of, uh, um, there's not a lot of time wasting of dialogue. And we don't waste dialogue time uh, in modern TV. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, most Star Trek episodes can be rewatched today and they'll hold someone's interest. That's why when they remastered it, the only thing they redid was the special effects because it's really kind of only what needed to make it a more modern show was to make special effects a little less cardboardy um, to a modern kid's eye. So, you know my personal favorite character from the original Star Trek is Kirk. And I know that you have a special affinity for that green-blooded, pointed-eared man. So tell me about your love affair with our Vulcan first officer. Um, I was an emotional kid uh, needing um, uh, a point of emotional balance, I guess. And Mr. Spock was clearly screwed up. Um, which we all are, and we all feel we are, um, but clearly dealing with his emotions, and that appealed to me greatly. And also the logic appealed to me greatly. Um, my, my favorite line uh, from original Star Trek, the, the, the shows, not the movies or anything, because I have a favorite one for movies, both of them are Spock. Uh, Spock says to Trelane, I object to you. I object to knowledge without reason. I object to power without constructive purpose. Um, I think that's the, I that I got it right. And it's so perfect because what is, when we're angry and we're about to go on a rant, it's knowledge without reason. You know, what is a tantrum? It's uh, expressing power without a constructive purpose. Um, and, you know, I used to, as a kid, I would throw tantrums. Um, and that Spock objected to this. Well, so did I. It's, it's why I didn't want to be that way. And Spock didn't want to be that way. And he didn't like that Trelane was that way. And I thought, that's just perfect. That's like the perfect sentence. Spock has some of the more perfect philosophy on the show. And, uh, and I adore him for it. I also adore him for how broken he is. Because he's broken. The Spock quote that I actually was thinking about before we got on to the podcast today is actually from Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. It's change is the essential process of all living beings. Which, Which is good, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's so many philosophy things that you could learn from Spock, even Kirk and McCoy, but mostly Spock because he has that duality of being human 
and being Vulcan and having to live and mesh the two sides together. And that's what I think appeals to you, me, and all the, all the other, in quotes, misfits that, that love him. I, I think that I think that the philosophy um, is best expressed through him sometimes more than than Kirk and McCoy, although they each get their shining moments. Um, because there are you know different aspects to people, uh, but because Spock is someone who is trying to, as we all do, reconcile um, our halves, and I think we all have two halves. Um, you know, we all have an emotional side and a rational side. And Spock spends his time trying to reconcile those and trying to live with those. Um, he has quite the, he is the, the character with the most evolution throughout the series. Um, after the, the V'ger incident, which I know people don't like as a movie and I have problems with certainly as far as the pacing is concerned. Um, it is a Spock movie in that um, it's all about him realizing that logic doesn't have to dictate everything to him, but he doesn't need to throw it away either. Um, logic can be his companion and he can use it as opposed to it making him so rigid. Uh, in fact, the difference between Spock previous to Star Trek, the motion picture, and then when we see him more, more whole because he's gone through the, uh, uh, the, the rigors, I guess, of the first movie. Um, he says to Kirk um, things like, were I to invoke logic, which suggests he doesn't necessarily all the time to everything. He's not as rigid as his father. He's not as rigid as he used to be. Um, or, you know, he lets logic suggest to him as opposed to logic owning him. And obviously you saw at the beginning of the Star Trek one movie, uh, him with him trying to go move toward Colonar, um, that he was going the other way. He was going the other extreme. Um, and trying to uh, trying to logic out all of his emotion, which he learned through the Vija experience was a mistake. So as I was, I, I, I remember reading a lot of these stories and I told you I'm halfway through the discovery book, taking out the original series novels that you have and stories you've written You've done Next Gen, you've done Voyager, the, the Starfleet Corps of Engineers, and you've just recently done the Discovery book. I'm I didn't get to do Enterprise or DS9. So out of those, what, what fulfilled you more to do as a writer? Of the, of the books that I've written? Mm -hmm. uh, the original series, um, I think to get a chance to write words for, for James Kirk and, and Spock is a hell of a thing. Um, and James Kirk is a, is a bear, man. He will not take words that are not written well for him. I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. 
<laughs> it, 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 it's, it's, you can't put words into that character's mouth and have them sound right. You can have them say them, but if they don't sound right, um, it's one of the things I always admired about um, James's, uh, James Colley's performance in, in, uh, in phase two was that, um, I'm not talking about the uh, vocal part of the performance, but uh, somehow uh, he knew what Shatner's, or what Kirk's, it's not even Shatner's really, um, uh, what is it, whether he could deliver a, a line or not, whether it would sound like Kirk or not, not sounding like Shatner, but sounding like Kirk. Um, and I thought he was, he was uh, very good at that. Um, and of course, before you meet James, you think he's putting on a, a bit of a Shatner uh, spoof. And then once you meet him, you realize, oh, this is James. Um, <laughs> this is just how he is. Um, and probably a lot of modeling went on in James's early life that has him uh, a lot more Captain Kirk-like. Um, but uh, I think uh, Trouble, the book I wrote, Troublesome Minds, will remain my favorite of the books that I wrote, in, uh, that I wrote, I'm a writer. The books that I've written, it's very close to my heart. It has sign language in it and a deaf main character. Um, and uh, my younger brother is deaf. And uh, so um, when I was writing the sign language, I was trying to come up with a sign language that was not ASL, but had the logic of a sign language. So that was fun. And it was a world building experience, both on the deaf side and on the um, side of the bad guys, quote unquote. Um, in the novel that uh, that fascinated me. So I will always love that book and the original series is just, the, the, without the original series, the rest doesn't exist. It, it's funny that you even brought up the fact that, you know, James is really Kirk in his, <laughs> yeah. normal, in, in his normal life because I remember when we shot the first Mind Sifter and I was the script supervisor. Among many other jobs I had to take on as people kind of just left that, that shoot, that we were up in the transporter room and uh, he, it was the interrogation scene and he kept every take, he changed the lines, changed the lines, changed the lines, changed the lines. I finally grabbed him for a second and I said, James, if you can change these lines again, I'm going to be so pissed at you. <laughs> and it's, be, it's because he's acting it, um, which, is, which is what real actors do. He's acting it. He's not, uh, uh, it's, it's not a script to him. It's uh, an emotional story to him. Um, although part of it may be uh, how, how, uh, how recently was the line changed and has he memorized it? But he, he's one of those people that you can give him, this is what Kirk needs to say, and he can put it into Kirk's speech. Um, not necessarily all the time and not necessarily perfectly, but he, he knows, he has down the, it's not even the cadence, it's not the cadence of a performance. He has down the, uh, 
or it has become innate to him how uh, how James Kirk would say something and would feel about something uh, even. Uh, I, I thought his uh, performance in, uh, uh, gosh, what's the one with uh, uh, George Takei? World Enough in Time. Uh, World Enough in Time, thank you. His performance in World Enough Time um, is testament to that. He's just, he's, he's not Shatner, he's not James, he's Kirk in that, uh, uh, in, in that TV show. One could say that the only other person who could do or is Kirk-like in their mannerisms and in their speaking voice, their normal speaking voice, that is, is me. Because I tend to kind of float that way. Because I'm always habitually thinking, not that I'm, I've never been that quick with my words anyway. And, and, and stuff. You don't have to be quick. You have to remember what you were thinking when you were saying, oh, I should have said this. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um. I'm not quick on my feet as far as uh, saying something, Uh, you know, giving a a good quip back to someone, but I can give a good quip back to someone because I remember stuff I've said previously. And it was usually in the car on the way home. Oh, I should have said this. And remembering that later has uh, stood me well. I bet with a, a writer's brain, you're the same type of person who thinks about it later and then just says, I got to keep that one and file it away. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't even do that. Like, I, I will be stuck in an ever-ending ever loop of, man, I should have said this. Man, I should have said that. No. Get a notebook and write it down. <laughs> oh, you go back and forth? I go back and forth in my said? head like like – like this, this would be good. No, 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 no. This, kind of like in Star Trek Three, that or nothing. Well, and pick one, mm-hmm. and see the response it gets. What are you gonna do? Blow up, or you know, just get destroyed by the Genesis planet? One or the other. One or the other. That's all right. Um, the one thing that you got to do that I never got to do other than write Star Trek novels, is that you got to write a script. Actually, you got, to, you got to write two scripts, one of which was filmed. Right. I've written more than two. Um, <coughs> um, I think, uh, what other, got? there might be three or four, all told. Um, I got to see part of the reshoots of Enemy Starfleet. Right. Um, I know that you had written The Troublesome Minds, which I read and I absolutely loved. That well, thank I you very much. I would have loved to see that get done. Um, to Boldly Go was the short, right? But to Boldly Go was the short, which was much shorter in my original concept and then got added on to when we had to add uh, admirals and Captain Garth and things like that. 
So it became a much longer piece. And uh, um, I preferred the short five page version, uh, which if you don't have, it's nicer. Um, I have it somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, you probably do. Um, I did write something called Rest and Recreation, which was a, 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 the first idea that we had, which was to go back to the R&R um, planet. I remember seeing... Rest and Retaliation. Sorry, Rest I, and Retaliation. I remember seeing the poster for that. There was, there was a couple of them that were ideas that I never got to see, like, you know, There was scripts. no way to do it budget-wise. It just budget-wise wasn't going to happen. I think the other one was Ken Kennelly Cats, I think. That was not mine. Somebody I'm, wrote it though. I'm just saying that that's, the, that's one of the other ones that I remember yeah, that, seeing posters. And, uh, there, there, was, uh, there was supposed to be one um, and I read the script for it was very good uh, that they never did. Uh, that was uh, a Harry Mudd revisit. that was mm -hmm. to be written by uh, my friend, Howie Weinstein. And that never happened. I mean, look, the truth is, is that James is always going to be script heavy because there's a lot of people who want to write scripts for Star Trek. Um, what could be done budget-wise? What could be done time-wise? What was exciting him at the moment um, uh, played into it. Um, uh, I think having Luna and having a role for Luna in Enemy Starfleet helped. Um, I think uh, um, <laughs> I think Luna chewed up the sets in sort of a wonderful way. And uh, anytime I see her, I want to give her a hug, although I think I'm going to break her. She always accepts my hug. Um, and uh, 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 I, I think it was, I think Enemy Starfleet didn't embarrass me and ended up being fun. And I was, a little worried at points that it would embarrass me. Um, <laughs> just because they were making things not fit that, you know, shouldn't fit. But the truth is, it's very collaborative. And you kind of, uh, if you're a writer who works on a novel, it's very different. Not that novels aren't collaborative, but basically, you know, an editor says, here, I think we should go in this direction and this should be fixed. And then they leave you alone to do it. And that's not true of television writing. Um, interestingly, working on phase two was probably a lot like working on Star Trek, um, which is the feeling that it gave you, which was really a good, awesome, fun feeling. And, you know, while it was a frustrating process, I can tell you from having friends in television who write, the real process is a much more frustrating process because there people are dealing with jobs and livelihoods and um, clashing giant egos and stuff like that. Um, you sort of have to, I decided to give up my ego. I wrote the first draft script for, um, for David Gerald's thing that I think parts have got filmed. Um, origins, yes. The pro origins, the protected man, electric protected man, yes. Um, I wrote the first draft script for that. I thought it was a good script. 
Um, uh, David apparently thought it was a good script and then uh, rewrote it in Maine uh, in certainly ways that I did not imagine. Um, oh, trust you me. I remember, I remember your draft. I remember like the hours before walking on the set, getting another script revision and then days later, print out, days later, print out. I remember it all. How many, how many revisions did it go through? Uh, I don't remember, but at this point, I think it was like five or six, I think. And, wow. and, and like four of them, I want to say were on the set. Like I was sitting, I was sitting next to David Gerald as he was, like he, that episode he was directing and he was rewriting when he wasn't directing. At yeah, that's points. that's that's a massive amount of work, um, and I don't think a lot of it was necessary. But he and I had very different uh, ideas about the emotional. Uh, curve of that script um and he didn't talk to me after um you know that and I actually understood I was writing script for him and I wasn't going to be consulted after that and I was like that's fine it's his story retracted man is his story I tried to update the story um and what I felt was a better Star Trek way than actually having this three color thing that he had had the idea of in the 60s because there are three colors on your TV. Um, and I would moved away from that into what did protracted man really mean? And he moved it back to that it was a special effect. And I was just sort of flabbergasted. Um, and, but, but a, 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 egotistically a, a distance enough away from it was like, okay, well, it's his story. Um, and I didn't really care that much. Um, although I, I did see the rewrite of uh, the Pike and Spock scene where, where Pike is giving Spock a, I'm sorry, he's giving Kirk the dress um, down. about Spock. Well, it wasn't a dress down in mine. It was a lift up. And um, in... I had to think his, about I had to think about that because I know that there was the dress down scene and I kind of remember what you're talking about and I think I was like right there as they were shooting it. Uh, yeah, it, it it changed the tone of the scene a lot. I never had Pike yelling at uh, Kirk. It's inappropriate. It's not professional. There was no reason for it. So he'd reached for a control. It wasn't. You know, I wasn't having Kirk do some horrible, horrible thing, and I wasn't expecting Pike to be yelling at him. And I found that out of character for Pike. And we've now seen uh, two other iterations of Pike, one in the 2009 movie and uh, one in, in Discovery, and we'll see again in Strange New Worlds. Um, is that Pike in any of them? Mm-mm. No, but uh, but I don't I don't I I'll I'll, I'll uh, 
Um, all due respect, David, I don't think he writes uh, military scenes that well. I don't think he's ever been in the military. And um, it's not, uh, Starfleet is not going to have drill sergeants that scream at you. I just don't buy that. Okay, so before I get you out of here, I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite Star Trek episode? And how much do you like Pike, Spock, and number one from Discovery? And if you were to write something for them, what would you write? Um, I would write a... Well, let me start at the first part. What is my favorite Star Trek episode out of all the Star Treks, out of all the episodes? Well, we can just go original series since, you know. Yeah, I think just original series because there are episodes of Enterprise and Voyager I don't even remember. Um, no offense to them, but, you know, a different era and a lot of episodes. Um, let me see here. Um, my favorite Star Trek episode, classic Star Trek episode, is probably still a city on the edge of forever. I, I don't think you can get past that that drama, not be touched by it. And it's jarring, it's chilling every time you watch it um, because the decision that Kirk makes, not because of the decision he has to make, but the decision he does make. And you understand it and you agree with it and it's the right thing to do and you are gutted for him. And when you can have such a close connection with character and be gutted for them in such a thing, I think it's a masterpiece. So I think City on the Edge of Forever was a masterpiece. And I, I, don't, I don't think that it was heading to be a masterpiece, masterpiece under um, Harlan. I think uh, Roddenberry turned it into one. And, you know, as much as people like to poo-poo on Roddenberry these days, you know, because he was, he was an old kind of writer and he was, a, you know, uh, uh, um, I think in, in Next Gen, he lost some of his steam. And, uh, but you can't discount the man's brilliance in these early days. And he gave us what Star Trek is. Um, and the scripts that he touched I mean, we're as impressive as hell. So I would go with that one. Um, what do I think of Pike, Spock, and uh, the Disco Enterprise? Uh, Pike, Spock, number one, and what would you write for them, for them if you had an opportunity to either write an episode or write a novel? <laughs> Um, a novel would be easy because it would just be a Star Trek novel and I'd have to know the, the, the bridge characters basically, but I already know Pike, learned a lot about Pike. I was at first oddly put off by Pike, um, Discovery Pike, and that he seemed so glib and so happy-go-lucky. And then I realized, right, the only time we ever saw Pike uh, he was depressed and thinking of a career change just because he just got a bunch of people killed. So we got morose, sad, uh, um, and, uh, you know, on the verge of de crippling depression, Pike. So of course we don't know much about him 
uh, you know, after he recovered from that, which he clearly recovered. Um, and I found, I like him. He's what you expect Pike to be. He's what you expect. They wrote him as you would expect him to be given Spock's loyalty to him. And I think they actually took the forethought of saying, here's a guy who Spock is so loyal to, he would give up his career. What is that man like? And what values does he have? And um, I think they back wrote that wonderfully. Um, I thought number one was wonderful, especially in the shorts Q&A. You can see where Spock gets, these are his Starfleet parents and where he gets his values from. He gets part of them from number one with being sort of buttoned up and logical. And he gets part of them from Pike, which is being inclusive of opinion and uh, 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 open to change. And all of those things, I think, gets from Pike. Um, and so I thought they did the characters brilliantly. And I would write just a classic planetary, you know, planet of the week Star Trek story whether it would be in book form or in, in script form, um, because that's, I think, what the, the show Strange New Worlds should be and will be from what they've said, um, is that it's going to be, you know, more episodic with, uh, you know, some character things following from episode to episode, but, but that not being the main, you know, uh, I think they're going to be more episodic than, than anything else. Um, and from what I've heard, uh, the scripts are good. And it's uh, going to be a very classic, enjoyable sort of Star Trek series. Um, you know, more, more classic than we've, we've gotten. Uh, certainly, the Star Trek that we've been watching is Star Trek portrayed over like three days or six days. And you get a snapshot, but the pace is extremely fast. Um, my favorite episode uh, of Discovery, I think, is um, has to do with with Spock, um, even though he's not in it. Um, it's uh, Lave. I think it's called Lave or Leave, however you pronounce it. Um, and it's an early episode in which Burnham learns that and was never told, of course, that um, uh, he gave up on her being in the Vulcan Science Academy and figured she could go into Starfleet, um, you know, because they were only going to accept one of them. And uh, it's a very difficult choice for any person in a father role to have to make. Uh, but he made it against Burnham and for Spock. And because he figured Spock would want to be in the Vulcan Science Academy. And he gave up Burnham's place to Spock, and Burnham's older. So she had to go into Starfleet. And uh, for Spock then to basically F you that, to Sarek and say, I, you know, he didn't know what he did, I'm sure, but to, to basically say, I'm going into Starfleet 
I don't, I don't care, you know, what you've worked out for me or what's going on. That's all the more reason. Uh, sorry, which obviously he could say in a Vulcan way. Um, you can see the depth of why Sarek was so hurt. And Sarek, not one to quickly blame himself, uh, is quick enough to blame uh, Spock. Um, because to his logical mind, that Spock isn't taking this is completely illogical. And, you know, if only one of the two were going to be accepted and Spock was accepted based on Sarek's word, why the hell would he screw this up? And so I see why they didn't talk much for years. Um, and they had this very standoffish, and all of a sudden, this thing that for 50 years we thought of as one way, we're thinking of as another way. Um, I think that's brilliant. And as much as you might take issue with how Discovery paces things, or like a lot of modern TV today, brings in one point point and drops it because they're go, 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 and you see it earlier and you go back, oh, that's right. They, you know, uh, tangled, or they dangled something in front of their nose about this before and they never did anything about it. You know, there is stuff like that and there is a lot of rushing, um, but this was extremely thoughtful on their part. And I was, they've been very thoughtful with Spock and the Pike and the uh, Burnham relationship, I thought. It's really funny that you find, you brought up Michael at the end I did not like Michael up until such sweet sorrow part two because oh um, wow because I just and I've said this in other podcasts that you know she reminds, reminds me of the worst qualities of Wesley Crusher throughout the first and second seasons of Discovery just because she's a know-it-all and for and and I have to go back and rewatch it and see if my, my, my view has changed. But I didn't see a redeemingness up until that episode because well, the the first season is a lot of tell but not show. Um and we're we're told how smart she is, but we don't really get to see it. Um the second season I thought I had a lot more of her being smart um uh on display. And that's it's important to to show it, not just tell it. Um, and I think one of the things that people reacted to and didn't like is we were told how wonderful she was, but we hadn't seen that yet. Well, I'll tell you, and, and you might laugh or you might like agree with me why I finally decided I I, I care to embrace about discovery. <laughs> no, no, I, I loved, I, I liked Discovery. It's just that I didn't, I, I guess I just didn't want to accept Michael. But in those final episodes with her and Spock, especially right before she leaves, and that emotional conversation between her and Spock is a conversation that I personally have had with somebody that I lost. And being that person to be behind and have to take care of people I think that's what I responded to and that's why like I said I have to go back and rewatch season two 
just to see if I, you know, my view has changed. It's and I'm worth not, it. Season two was good. I mean, one I told uh, Mary Beth that my favorite character in, Enter, uh, I almost said Enterprise, in <laughs> Discovery is actually Stamets because he actually reminds me of Worf, who reminds me of my dad, because it's all so matter of fact. That so, does remind you of Worf a little bit. That's, uh-huh. I had never heard that before, but that's kind of good. Um, but I loved all the secondary characters. I loved Saru, I loved Tilly. It was just Michael I always had the problem with up until that moment. And maybe it just, with, with, maybe it's just that I watched the whole season and with that moment, all of it just clicked. Maybe that's what it is. But like I said, that moment is what I think about. That to me, out of the whole, out of all the things that I saw during season two, that was the most Star Trek, the most human thing I saw. And that's what I gravitated towards. I like that they treated them like brother and sister and they acted like brother and sister toward each other. Um, you can tell there was a, a brother-sister relationship there in the way he talks to her. Um, and it's nice to hear Spock talk like that as well. And we always, you know, when we first saw Spock with the smiling and stuff and uh, so on and so forth, you know, they didn't have necessarily the character worked out, but to include a lot of that, like uh, in the Q&A, um, no need to shout Mr. Spock. Because Mr. Spock was very shouty in the first uh, few episodes. Um, the woman density. Um, the women. Yes, the women. <laughs> uh, what, a, what, a, what a tragically sexist line. Um, and uh, <coughs> um, I think uh, I think that by getting if they had gotten Spock wrong. Um, it would have been the end of it. Um, But they really wanted to tie the series to Spock, which is why they made her this, you know, adoptive foster sister. Um, And I don't think they needed to do that. But if they were going to do it, they had to at least do it in a way that made sense to the really messed up family dynamics that is the Sarek family. And they have a messed up family dynamic. They're a, they're a screwed up, you know, family. And that's kind of refreshing to see. Um, and by the way, all of the fault is not on, uh, uh, is, is not on Sarek. I think that Amanda, you know, has some, some bills to pay there too. Because uh, she let a lot of this happen. There's no reason to let your uh, son and his father not talk for years over a lie because he never told Spock, I'm sure. He certainly never told or didn't until this time tell Burnham about it. So he wouldn't have told Spock. Um, and so I think there was a lot of depth given to the characters and it was, it was right. And it probably fell into place for you at a different points and fell into place for others. But I think it needed to fall in place, and that was the season to do it with Spock. And Spock helped it fall into place. Um, yeah. Um, and notice they played chess, which is what 
he and Kirk would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the one line that I I I remember from that conversation as if it were like yesterday, and it's something that my friend who I lost kind of said to me. And mind you, that this was years earlier. So he said, and Michael says, there will people who will reach for you. You have to reach for them. Mm. And that's what Spock does with Kirk. Yep. This is it. And they were they were laying that groundwork, um, which was, I think, really well done. Um, I dug it. I dug it too. Um, <coughs> Dave, yeah. before I let you go, I don't know if you've been on Facebook lately. I know you've been feeling, you know. Off and on. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to get to, if I'm going to get this project. I've got two projects that I'm working on. Don't worry um, about it. One of them is a Kirk story that I'm going to have actors do for... Oh, like a table read? Like a table read with uh, uh, stuff. And uh, the other is a Spock story, which I think I may or may have not given you parts of it, but the Spock story is going to be dedicated to you when I get oh. that that done. You're very kind. Hey, you've been a big part of you've been a big part of my Star Trek life since I started on Yeah. I I or actually I, no, be 2008. I I could net like I was telling you before about another thing, I could never repay the things that you have done and everybody else in that family has done for me in a thousand years. And I am blessed to have known and loved you all. Well, same to you and same to actually everybody there. And I think you used the right word. It's just a family. Um, and that's the way family should be, um, you know, giving of each other. And uh, there's no more giving heart than yours. Um, you've certainly given uh, so much of your time and effort uh, and and your humor and love um, that uh, I'm sorry we didn't get enough set time with each other. Um, it's hard to get away from life. Well, it was only summer camp, but the summer camp yeah. continued into real life when we would, all of us, whether it be in a podcast or just Facebook messaging, we always somehow reached for each other to coin a phrase. But I had fun today. I hope you did too. I did. My friend. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. All right. You take care of yourself. You too. This podcast was very difficult to record, edit, and now to end. But Dave and I have not spoken in a couple of years, face to face, not for lack of wanting, just life taking you where you seldom want to go. Uh, you may 
may have heard or may have not heard in my voice how emotional I was. But before the podcast, I was having feelings and thinking about somebody I had lost a couple years ago to what form of what Dave is facing now. And I wanted the opportunity to tell Dave how much he meant to me in my writing in my Star Trek life because I did not get the opportunity to say it to the person that I did lose. Dave will continue to be a great friend to me. And before we end like Dave would want, remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe to the podcast. You can get it at Google, Spotify, Apple, basically everywhere, Anchor. Uh, Look us up on Facebook, Fez Talks Podcast. Instagram and Twitter at Fez Talks. And of course, if you want to get us through the old-fashioned way, Fez Talks at gmail.com. Until next time. Space, the final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Our ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before.